Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome back to part three of Hot Topics in CT, May 2015, what the literature is telling us. And we've had a number of interesting discussions in the first two parts, and now let's go down to the third part. And there have been several other things I've been reading about lately. We've given talks about incidental omas, and I've noticed there's been a few more articles on incidental omas, and let's cover some of the topics. Recent articles spoke about the ACR Incidental Findings Committee looking at the gallbladder and biliary tree. And so it is an important area because there are incidental findings from calcified and non-calcified gallstones, gallbladder wall thickening, distended gallbladder polyps or potential masses, gallbladder wall calcifications, dense material in the gallbladder, incidental duct dilatation, Again, we obviously know we're going to pick up gallbladder pathology from cholithiasis to uh, cholecystitis and even carcinomas, but what about these incidental findings? Several conclusions this paper makes. If there are one or more visible gallstones with no associated ductal dilatation, mass, or clinical symptoms, no additional workup is necessary. You do not need to do an ultrasound. Gallbladder ultrasound may be indicated when symptoms such as biliary colic develop, but simply seeing a few stones is not a reason you need to do something. The question often came about gallbladder wall calcification. Remember, we always worried about gallbladder wall calcification because, oh my God, porcelain gallbladder and then gallbladder cancer, perhaps you need to do something in those cases if you see calcification. Well, Again, the conclusion, although gallbladder wall calcification, also known as the porcelain gallbladder, has been long thought to be associated with a substantial increased risk for gallbladder cancer, large retrospective studies have shown that the risk is 5 to 7%. One study of 25,900 gallbladder specimens found that calcification was present in 44. Uh, 155 of 25,900 patients had gallbladder cancer, but only two of 44 with gallbladder wall calcifications were among the 150 with carcinoma. So I think this article makes the point that you can have carcinoma with calcification or without calcification. So perhaps you're over worrying. Therefore, the committee does not recommend follow-up in patients with gallbladder wall calcification. However, if the referring physician desires follow-up, this should be individualized on the basis of the patient's comorbidities and life expectancy. Ultrasound may not be worthwhile for following asymptomatic gallbladder wall calcifications, particularly when concentric because then you don't see the gallbladder contents. Furthermore, a gallbladder wall mass may be nearly isodense on non-contrast CT. So with follow-up, use contrast enhanced scanning. So again, you don't need to follow up thin calcifications or routine calcifications, but if you want, simply repeat the CT scan. Okay, what about dense gallbladder? You know, that's really a challenge. We see dense gallbladder all the time. It can be due to many things, from sludge to excretion of IV contrast from iodine or gadolinium-based studies, even from a couple days ago. It could be hyperconcentrated bowel, hemorrhage, or non-calcified gallstones. The clinical history should help narrow differential diagnosis. In the absence of other findings, such as wall thickening or pericholcystic changes, hyperattenuating gallbladder contents do not warrant prompt evaluation of follow-up. So again, dense gallbladder, dense bile is not a reason for another imaging study. Okay? What about gallbladder wall thickening? In the absence of secondary causes of gallbladder wall thickening, such as hepatitis, 
CHF, liver disease, pancreatitis, or hypoproteinemia, a primary cause should be excluded by clinical history. If the thickening is uniform or nearly so, the risk for a carcinoma is very, very low. If you see asymmetric wall thickening, then perhaps you would want to make certain the patient does not have a carcinoma. People ask, what about gallbladder distension, which is considered four sonomies transverse or nine sonomies longitudinally, be it CT or MR? And what this article concludes, ACR, in the absence of right upper quadrant symptoms, physiologic distension secondary to fasting is most likely. Otherwise, acute obstruction should be considered. Prompt further evaluation should depend on the patient's symptoms and laboratory findings. And again, that's a very, very common sense way of looking at things. Now, another question is, what if the biliary duct is dilated? Biliary duct dilatation is defined as a common duct or common hepatic duct over six millimeters in a patient over 60 with a gallbladder present and a common duct over 10 millimeters with a gallbladder absent. Okay, that's the kind of magic numbers. Mild dilatation is unlikely to be clinically important when ALK-FOS and bilirubin are normal. And in those situations, no further testing is necessary. So there's some things you can do, but I think the point is these are probably going to be very common findings, and you might simply just do little. Now, what about aortic aneurysms as an incidental finding? The older the patient you scan, the more likely you are going to pick up an incidental aneurysm, whether it's thoracic aorta, abdominal aorta, or iliac vessels. Abdominal aortic aneurysms represent a progressive increase in aortic diameter, 10th most common cause of death in the Western world. We speak about them as suprarenal or infrarenal. Normal diameter of a suprarenal aorta is 3 centimeters, infrarenal 2 centimeters. We call things an aneurysm, diameter of over 3 centimeters, or dilatation 1.5 times the normal diameter. On the basis of these numbers, 9% of patients over 65 have abdominal aortic aneurysms. This article goes further to say that emergency surgery for aortic aneurysm rupture has high mortality, while surgery for a non-emergent is low, 4 to 6%, so it's like about one-tenth, okay? Therefore, it is valuable to detect aneurysms and follow them until elective surgery is indicated. Once it's growing more than uh, a centimeter or so on a yearly basis, that's when patients are going to have surgery. And here's just some magic numbers. Here's a nice chart. I've never seen this before till this article. Aortic diameter and then interval imaging. If you have an aorta that's 2.5 centimeters, you can follow it in five years. If it's four centimeters, one year over 4.5, six months, and you can see how that chart operates. So again, your concern is not with the word aneurysm, but how large an aneurysm you have. Now, in the ACR guidelines article, they also spoke beyond the abdominal aorta. Uh, aneurysms involve both common and internal iliac arteries, more common than the external. Iliac artery aneurysm is defined as a vessel diameter 1.5 times the normal iliac or 2.5 centimeters in diameter. Iliac artery aneurysms are rare in isolation. Aneurysms that are less than 3 centimeters in diameter tend to be asymptomatic and rarely rupture. Those 3 to 3.5 should be followed up with imaging in about 6 months. And then if stable, another year. Iliac artery aneurysms over 3.5 centimeters have a tendency to rupture and should be treated more aggressively. Okay, that's just something to remember. So 
it's not just the presence of an aneurysm, but the sight in how you make decisions. Articles, some comments about the uh, mesenteric vessels, splenic artery aneurysms are the most common, visceral aneurysm, and third most common, intra-abdominal aneurysm after the iliacs and aorta, okay, aorta being the most common. Um, vast majority of uh, splenic artery aneurysms are true aneurysms, although pseudoaneurysms due to prior information like pancreatitis or infection can occur, okay, fairly uncommon. Risk factors for developing these aneurysms are similar to other aneurysms. Again, in terms of things like splenic artery aneurysms, then you have risk factors, hypertension, obesity, coronary artery disease, and hypercholesterolemia. Okay, so it's just something to be aware of. Now, spontaneous rupture of a splenic artery is rare, particularly for under two centimeters. Larger ones can spontaneously rupture, but they usually have thin walls. Additional risk factors with rupture include childbearing uh, years for women. So if a woman is pregnant, that could be an issue. If they're increasing in size rapidly, patients with cirrhosis and uh, other patients who have comorbidities. It's important to remember that possibility. Surgical literature suggests an aneurysm uh, treat, should be treated with endovascular repair over two centimeters. So again, um, yearly surveillance is often what is done. Uh, yearly surveillance for small splenic artery aneurysms is recommended, or for aneurysms above two centimeters, approximately one year would be indicated. So again, uh, it's a balancing act depending how large the aneurysm is, how old the patient is, and what are comorbidities. We also speak about things like uh, renal artery aneurysms, and we've spoken about that before. We also speak about renal artery disease in general, fibromuscular dysplasia, pseudoaneurysms. Um, you can see that patients often have multiple disease processes, multiple findings uh, are all things that need to be considered. And if you look carefully, uh, some people with um, hypertension are the ones you worry about. So all incidentally uh, discover renal arteries greater than, with aneurysms over 1.5 centimeters or less can be followed conservatively. When things get larger, they should be considered particularly above two for surgical repair. So size makes a difference. And again, if you follow these patients, transitions, things getting larger are gonna be very, very important. I think it's important to recognize that when we do things with numbers, you can give all the numbers you want and they make sense when you read them on a chart on the wall. But in managing patients, numbers alone are not going to be the only issue. Patient symptoms, the rate of growth are all things that will be very important. Now, it's also important to recognize that different surgeons will do different things. Here is a comment about, again, renal artery aneurysms, conservative follow-up are indeed very, very common. We speak about uh, other zones in the visceral aneurysm uh, topic, celiac, hepatic, GDA, mesenteric, gastric, and a lot of these can be related to prior surgery, some related to atherosclerosis, and some are going to be mycotic. So again, there's a wide range of different possibilities. Okay, so it's very important to really be aware of that. The last thing I'm going to comment on is ovarian veins, only because people ask me about ovarian veins. 
And it's kind of interesting. Ovarian veins can dilate. You can see bilateral or unilateral, left more common than right. And when they're very large and go into the pelvis, we talk about pelvic congestion syndrome. We talk about its importance or sometimes lack of importance, but it is not going to be uncommon. Um, it's interesting in this article from the ACR, incompetence of the ovarian and draining pelvic veins are considered the main cause of pelvic congestion syndrome in women, symptoms of which can persist with dull pelvic pain. And if it does for more than six months, those are the ones you often will aggressively treat. Uh, dilated pelvic veins can be an incidental finding as well. So again, it's going to vary. We see lots of patients, particularly patients who've had multiple kids, have prominent uh, pelvic veins and have prominent ovarian and draining veins. Okay. Now it's interesting, there was an article about renal donors, women who gave a kidney, who had pelvic venous prominence, or what might be considered pelvic congestion syndrome, and about 40% of them actually said once they gave the kidney they felt better. So we're not sure if the fact is they feel better or they really feel better. So, but it's something to definitely be aware of. Also, to make the point about gonadal vein thrombosis, is something we do look at. It kind of looks almost like a urinary a gonadal vein when it's dilated, but you can recognize it if you're careful for the thrombus. It commonly occurs after patients with surgery like hysterectomy or lymphadenectomy. So if you don't look for it, you're not gonna see it. Patients with gonadal vein thrombosis are gonna be anticoagulated. So it's an important diagnosis to make. Okay, let me look at one more topic, and that's pancreatic cancer. A few good points came up, and again, we've kind of spoken a lot about pancreatic cancer, but one thing we noticed is, particularly with outside films and with outside referrals, you get a scan, you say the patient's resectable, they come back three months later, now what do you do? Do you repeat the study? Do you go operate in a three-month-old scan? What exactly do you do? And that indeed is worrisome. There's an article by Rahman, uh, CT was accurate in predicting the absence of metastatic disease. The study was performed within 25 days of surgery. And the further out you went, the less likely the CT was going to be uh, correct. And it's kind of interesting. CT is an accurate method to stage pancreatic cancer, but accuracy depends on the time. The longer the time between CT and surgery, the more likely things are going to be wrong. So again, very, very important. And what this article makes the point is that if a patient had a scan three months ago at an outside institution or your institution and it looks resectable and you want to operate, you better repeat the study because what was true before is not necessarily true now. And that becomes very important. And in this article, it seemed like the magic number was 25 days. But again, it's something to think about. Now, the other thing, as long as I'm mentioning the pancreas, would be structured reporting. Now, why am I mentioning pancreas and structured reporting? We published an article last year talking about the importance uh, of uh, systematic evaluation of pancreas for accurate staging. And structured reporting was being designed to make certain people looked at things, particularly the mesenteric vessels. Uh, in this article, they made the comment they were uncertain if the surgeons would like structured reports. And in fact, the answer was yes, they did like it. And it's no doubt because it seemed in most cases to be easier for the surgeons to read. They, they deemed information with surgical planning was more accessible. Uh, they had sufficient information in about 98% of cases for surgery. So again, it really is an ideal way to do things. 
and structured reporting may indeed continue to grow. I know the ACR is really pushing it along, but perhaps as we think about it, if it impacts management, then it's very, very helpful. And a summary by this article by Babu, uh, structured reports created with standardized templates are gaining popularity, especially among trainees. Advantages include uniformity and improved communication with referring docs, improved mining, lesser likelihood of pertinent information being omitted, and facilitation of the, the drawing of attention to critical findings. So there are some positive disadvantages may include decrease in productivity, possibility of unsuitability of a report for a complicated case, and possible lengthening of a report into a normal case. So again, there are the pluses and the minuses, but people are looking at things like checklists. Here's an article in Academic Radiology by Wood, how checklists can exist to standardize actions, incorporate guidelines, and avoid omissions of a key point. It can indeed be helpful and speaks about how organizations will have to go to this. Um, there are inherent problems with guidelines, and you need to be very careful that they written correctly, that they work correctly, but indeed they're definite possibilities uh, and are being developed. Uh, it's important to remember, like with anything with quality, there always is someone who will say, no, it's not going to work. But as we all speak, you really have to try. Two good quotes on that. Quality means doing it right when no one is looking. And Steve Jobs, be a yardstick of quality. Some people aren't used to an environment where excellence is expected. And with that, I'll leave you from the home of where excellence is expected, ctsus.com. And we'll see you on the next podcast. Thanks a lot. <laughs>